This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zelensky. Mike Murphy is a legendary political consultant and one of the Republican Party's most successful ever campaigners. In his career, Mike has handled media and strategy for more than 26 successful Republican campaigns for clients including Jeb Bush, Mitt Romney, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he was also the senior strategist for John McCain's historic and legendary presidential race in 2000. Mike has also advised political leaders in many, many foreign countries. He's a prominent media personality and is the co-host of the hugely popular podcast, Hacks on Tap. I caught up with Mike for a chinwag about why he's always been against Trump since the 90s. We talked about President Trump's first term in office, why Trump loves dictators so much, why trust has eroded so badly in politics, the future of the Republican Party, who Biden should pick as his VP candidate, and what should keep Democratic strategists awake at night. It's a really fun episode. I hope you get as much out of it as I did. And as ever, please jump on, rate, review the podcast. It really helps. Enjoy the episode. Mike Murphy, welcome to Diplomates. Thanks for joining us today, mate. Well, Misha, great to be here. Thanks for uh, inviting me. Now, so many places we could start, I thought. Um, you know, we'll get to the um, current political situation in the U.S. shortly, but I thought a great place to start would be talking about um, November 8, 2016. You're a very prominent never-Trumper, and you were a never-Trumper then. I was wondering if you might just take us through the thoughts running through your mind on election night. Well, it was a mix of kind of shock and horror. I mean, I've been anti-Trump since 19, probably 93. Uh, only because I was working back then for the newly elected governor of New Jersey, Christine Todd Whitman, and Trump was slippering around Atlantic City. So we had some unfortunate, you know, experiences with him. So I was no stranger to kind of his um, his uh, character and his problems. Now, that said, uh, like most people in my business, I was very surprised when he won because it was pretty obvious from the polling and just kind of the normal rules of political gravity that he was going to get clobbered in the popular vote. And and most of the time, almost all the time, it's only happened five times in American history uh, where the popular vote does not elect the president. Because, of course, we have the Electoral College, which is a old device from the original founders, kind of like the Senate, where the smaller states have outsized power. You know, California has two senators. Little Rhode Island has two senators. Well, it kind of works the same way with Electoral College. So he he was able to draw the inside straight in Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, my home state of Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Three states, by the way, that had not voted Republican, had not been carried by the Republican Party in a presidential race since the 1980s. But narrowly, 77,000 votes out of 13.5 million, the, the three states all cast together. The margin was that small, but it was enough. So I remember I was there with James Carville. We both worked for NBC News, and uh, he was getting texts. I was getting texts from friends of ours out in the field with just disbelief, you know, that Trump was showing this weird pattern. You know, he did worse than Mitt Romney, our last Republican candidate, in a lot of suburbs. But in what we call exurbs, which are kind of farther out suburbs with cheaper housing, but a lot of middle class, lower middle class people. And then out in rural areas, he was blowing the doors off it. So it started to dawn on us that 
the polls were going to be wrong. They were going to predict the, the popular vote right. Hillary won by nearly 3 million votes. But in the distribution of the vote in those industrial Midwestern states and, and a few other places, he was going to come really close and maybe win the damn election. So it was just complete shock. And then, you know, when I got my pulse under control about that, because I, I was not excited about Hillary Clinton, but I thought Trump was a cheap demagogue and a populist and not a conservative. I thought, what is this guy going to do? So then for about a month, I uh, I started thinking, well, give him a chance. They're surrounding with staff. I mean, I saw Rance Priebus that night in the middle of the night at NBC, and I knew him from the party. He had been our party chairman, and he was rumored to go in as uh, chief of staff. And I remember I pulled him aside at 3 in the morning uh, election night, and I said, Look, you gotta, you gotta take it. You gotta surround this guy because you know. And he's like, "We know, we know. We're gonna build a cage. It'll be, you know, we're on it." <laughs> and, and, and then it began. And you know, but I, I also felt like an idiot because I. And I'm sorry for the long answer, but it, um, I had done a podcast during the election called Radio Free GOP, kind of a precursor to Hex on Tap, but it was basically just me screaming about Trump and then interviewing operatives about how they got into politics and kind of their story. Still on iTunes, if anybody cares. Uh, and so I had I had predicted with great certainty a thousand times he'd lose, and then there he was winning. So I thought, oh, this is great. I'll be eating crow here for a year, and I did. <laughs> well, I have to say, you're not alone in predicting uh, that Hillary would win. I famously said uh, that Hillary wouldn't just win, but win well, that she'd absolutely crush it. So um, you're certainly not by yourself there, mate, and I've considered that point in this podcast on a number of occasions. Well, she half did. That, that's all I'll say. You know, she did. You, you know, here's a little bit of American political trivia. You know who? So the Electoral College, um, and again, it's happened five times in American history, never in the 20th century, twice in the 21st, 2000 and 2016, where the Electoral College has been different than the popular vote. You know who invented it? Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> that's the song that never made the musical. You know, I came up with this stupid thing, la-di-da, la-di-da. But, uh, yeah, and it's here to stay. So we're, we're see this year it looks a little more aligned, but, you know, we have a lot of campaign yet to happen. Now, Mike, I'm, I'm curious for your take um, on Trump's first term thus far. Uh, we're coming up to the end of his first term. You're uh, obviously very bearish about his presidency overall uh, as an ever-Trumper. But, mm-hmm. you know, how would you assess it? Has it been kind of what you expected, a bit better, worse? Um, keen for your take. Uh, worse. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought, all right, they're going to put the training wheels on them. And it, the, one of the things that is true about this, um, Trump didn't think he was going to win. Trump's people didn't think he was going to win. Kellyanne Fitzpatrick uh, Conway, I always call her Kellyanne Fitzpatrick because that was her original name when she started in politics. So my apologies, it's Conway, Kellyanne Conway. She was calling, so there's a thing in American politics, the, the, the media spend millions and millions and millions of dollars on exit polling, which is, they do, their, they do it as well as it can be done, but it's shaky. Uh, because you have to do two things. You intercept people at polls when they come in out and say, how'd you vote? And you try to get bellwether precincts, but it's a big country. And again, we learned about, you got to really understand the distribution of the vote with the Electoral College. The other thing people forget is, what about absentee voters? How do you poll? Well, you do a phone poll the two days before the election. So, you know, then you put it all on a computer and you, you, you predict. So during the day, the exit polling data comes in in waves. So the morning vote plus the absentee, the afternoon vote, and the evening vote. 
And there is a projection that the exit polling service at the three networks or the five networks, wherever they are now, control, sends out an hourly update where the number keeps moving. And that leaks. Some of us get it. Other people leak. And it's a big sport among politicos. Where are the exits? Starting at about three in the afternoon, really. Uh, so the exits were coming out, and they are bad for Trump. And so Kellyanne was on the phone calling all the national reporters. You know, this campaign was screwed up, but they'd only listen to me. I knew they were going to lose. You know, that darn Reince Priebus. And unbelievable, because it's a snake pit in their world, and, you know, culture is set from the top. So then Trump is sitting there on election night, and they've got the classic, you know, five TVs in the suite. And they're starting to predict he's going to win, and he doesn't believe it. So he's, like, checking each channel. He thinks it's a prank. Um, You know, it's like it's fake. <clears throat> and then the famous story, and you know, I wasn't in the car, so I can't say it's absolutely true, but I, I believe it, and the people who also believe it were almost in the car. He turned to then uh, PR aide um, Hope, um, God, it's early here, and I'm trying to remember. She left and came back. Uh, anyway, he turned to his PR aide uh, as they drove through the White House gates to you know, begin the transition process, and he looked at her and said, all I was trying to do was increase ratings on The Apprentice. <laughs> so he was more surprised than anybody. So I thought, okay, if, he's, if, they've call, if the dog has caught the car, he'll bring in some war horses, and it'll be kind of a Jimmy Carter, semi-incompetent, buffoonish presidency. But he won't actually try to be president other than ride around in the big plane and try to find the alien remains in Roswell out at the Air Force Base in Nevada. You know, he'll it's like a movie of some kind of, you know, clown uh, talk radio person got beamed up into the presidency. What would they do? Well, do I have a yacht? They'd get into the quality of life. I thought that would probably happen. Instead, he tried to be president. And most of the serious people wouldn't work for him because he has a bad style. He's abusive and he won't read anything. Um, the, the military briefers and the intelligence people among themselves who were all, you know, impressive career types would walk in there. And they used to call the briefing story time, like they were talking to a five-year-old, because they wouldn't read anything. So they learned to quickly do cartoons and charts. You know, I, I used to joke sock puck, puppets were going to be next because he has zero attention span. And what he likes to do is pace and talk about the election and how they tried to steal it from him. And he only lost New Hampshire because they bust in, you know, union active. And it's crazy. It's like in every campaign, you sometimes you have to suffer foolish donors who give the party a fair amount of money. And they mean well. Most of them are great. But you have a few who, like, make their fortune in plastic uh, coat hangers. And they give you 30 minutes on how the wire coat hanger's a joke. And if it hadn't been for their genius in the plastic coat hanger, you know, they wouldn't have all this money. And, you know, they could use that same insight to fix the entitlement budget problems. You know, they're blowhards. Well, it's like a guy like that got elected. And, you know, here we are. Now, uh, we've got to get a little on topic. This is, of course, a a foreign policy show. I'm kind of curious... Uh, to get an insight from you, I mean, Trump's first term, what's been interesting is how in the few times that Trump's run into trouble uh, with the House Republicans who have essentially backed him in most of the way, the times he's run into trouble with them or bumped up against them has been on foreign policy, be mm-hmm. it um, you know what happened in Helsinki, uh, some of the issues relating to uh, to NATO and other matters of that nature. You know, So how costly do you think it's been for the US in terms of Trump's approach to allies and alliances, including the Australian ANZUS Alliance. And also, what is it with Trump's tendency to lord strongmen and dictators? And why does he seem to push away his friends and get draw in closer, um, you know, 
people that and regimes that essentially been um, enemies of the United States and these types of characters that are, are quite unsavory, he seems to cling on to them. What is it about him that does that? You know, it is the question. Um, I'm not a, enough of a psychiatrist to really go through it, other than his dad had a little goose step in his behavior. You know, they didn't have a great, he was an authoritarian. Look, look into Fred Trump. I always joke if there was a time machine in one trip, I would not go back and kill baby Hitler. I'd go back and tell Fred Trump to be less of an asshole to his kid, because 45 years later, it would solve a lot of problems. Uh, he has shown a real hostility to the classic alliances, and I, I don't think he understands geopolitics. Um, uh, a friend of mine, I, I, I don't want to blow up his career, who is a very distinguished American career person in the foreign policy space, went into the White House and was stunned to see that as bad as he thought it would be, and, and this person is no amateur, it was worse. And Trump literally, you know, it, it had a limited understanding of basic geography. Um, and uh, uh, so I, I think everything is transactional to Trump, and it's all very small time. Like, what are we paying for Ramstein Air Force Base in Frankfurt? You know, it's high rent. Uh, he doesn't understand the Atlantic Alliance. He's hostile to it. Um, clearly, he, you know, Australia is a critical ally of ours and an increasingly geopolitically even more important one. Uh, linchpin in many ways of uh, what ought to be our, our, our Asian network of alliances, along with, you know, the Koreans and Japan. Uh, and he um, he just seems to have an instant hostility. He doesn't do protocol well. He he has a hard time doing two way conversations. Um, you know he's a blowhard again. So you're sitting there. You're the prime minister of Australia. You have to listen to this guy, ill informed, win John and on. And I'll tell you a funny story. So Erskine Bowles, who had been, you know. Uh, uh, a big leading Democrat had been a White House chief of staff, good friend of mine. Uh, we both got a call because in the U.S., if you're known in politics, there's a whole, and I'll call it a racket um, because that's somewhat accurate, Where because I'm on cable TV bloviating a bit. So, you know, and Erskine, of course, is highly uh, esteemed. You get called to do paid speeches. So you go to the outboard motor dealers and, you you know, two of you joke around or Axelrode and I do it at Carville or the Bagala. And you kind of entertain the crowd, but it's and then they give you a big check and, you know, dinner and you go home. It's the easiest dollars in the world. Well, we both got a call from the Speaker's Bureau early in the Trump presidency. Well, you want to go to London. And I always want to go to London, but it's going to take three or four days. And I'm like, well, you know, pay triple your fee. When are we leaving? You know, so Erskine and I wind up in an elite hotel there. And I got to be a little careful because I think we're under an NDA. And there are only 12 people in the room. And they are 12 of the oldest, richest private families in Europe. France, UK, Germany. You know, Baroness Heineken was sitting. You know, big, big names. Rothschild. And... We had a very polite discussion, but their question was yours, with a little more of an exclamation point, which is, what the hell is going on? Don't you idiots understand? There was a German there who was very persuasive. Our largest trading partner is Russia. We don't like them. They're next door. And, you know, you guys are the metronome clock of the Atlantic Alliance, and now all we hear are clown shoes tapping around and baby gurgles, and this is really bad, and you clowns get it. Now, we, of course, got it, but... It was hard to explain that we'd had this eruption and we would have a clown present for a while. So, anyway, long answer to, to, to get to the meat of it. We have damaged our alliances. We've emboldened our enemies. 
Uh, we've we've taught every dictator in the world that bad behavior can be rewarded. I mean, hell, we went out and legitimized Kim Jong Il for no for no trade. I mean, the I, I came up in the foreign policy world, and rule number one is you you want to get an American president eyeball to eyeball, you earn that with behavior. And instead, just out of vanity and ego, this guy shows up to the arguably the worst regime you know in modern history in terms of what it's done to its own people. It makes Stalin look like amateur night. Uh, and there he is. So um, the next president is, it, it's going to be interesting. And I'm sure there will be grins in Canberra and in Bonn and London and Paris because the, uh, there will be relief that there be somebody back to normal. But they're also going to get a price. You know, they're, we're, we're going to be paying some taxes here, making up uh, for the egregious behavior of this guy. And that's the way the world works. So it it has been really damaging, I think, to our our position in the world and it's there's less security now there's more instability well it's interesting isn't it because during the trump presidency in his first term it's a lot of the world's still looking to u.s leadership and saying yeah. well you know there's still a role for u.s leadership and, and a craving um for traditional u.s leadership right and right. so whether or not um the trump presidency is a reorientation of uh, u.s policy or whether or not it's an aberration um is going to be sort of decided in november and it's a critical question for the world right yeah it reminds me of it's like a jet airliner and the pilots died and the co-pilot died and they're going passenger to passenger to see if anybody has a pilot's license before a thousand miles and and luckily there are some pilots on the plane they're just in the back row and it's going to take them five months to find one <laughs> that's a uh, that's a chilling metaphor mate now um, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about it, but the question of trust, I want to talk about trust in politics because Trump, in many ways, uh, is the consequence of low trust, mm-hmm. um, but he's also the destructor of trust. So, you know, a lot of people will say, you know, should we trust Trump? One of the things that's interesting uh, when you look at some polling, if you dig into it, um, on coronavirus, about 20% of Americans trust uh, the president of the United States on information about the coronavirus, right. which is about half um, of Trump's uh, uh, approval rating. So half right. of the people that approve of Trump don't trust him on coronavirus, which is peculiar, to say the least. But, you know, what does low trust more generally tell us about politics? And, and, and should it worry us? And do you think trust can be, you know, restored in politics more importantly? Because it is a critical ingredient in democracy. Yeah, that's a great question because the glue of the democracy is some trust like that. I, I think it's working at several levels. I think... When Trump first got elected, one of the problems we have in in our culture, and I ran Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, campaign uh, for governor of California, you know, the second biggest job here. And Arnold was the first classic example since maybe Governor George Murphy, no relation, back in California, who came out of Hollywood, and then later Ronald Reagan. But Arnold was a pop culture celebrity who just made a huge audacious leap sideways into national politics. But I can tell you, he, Arnold is very shrewd, and he knew that he he had to build a machine to be ready to govern. And, you know, Arnold on movie sets would spend all his time in his trailer hanging around with political policy nerds to kind of learn the business. He took it very seriously. Trump was also a move from pop culture over, but he didn't take it seriously, nor did he build a bunch of uh, strong staff relationships. I think one of the things in the culture that happened when, when Trump moved from pop culture was people had become so cynical through political doublespeak and kind of Washington's arrogance and the the cult, you know, the gilded city that's never felt a recession, 
that the stakes of politics became low enough that your vote was kind of a joke. You know, you saw in Italy, they're voting for baggy pants comedians. You know, you've seen this before in other places. Well, Trump, your vote didn't mean to say, oh, I'll give it to that guy who's going to drain the swamp. You know, there, there was a combination of kind of antipathy for institutions. We have a middle class that's been squeezed by flat real wages for a long time. So the American dream's not working for them. They're working harder and getting less. Then you've got the uh, kind of the... The financial engineering class, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, though they're, of course, more innovative. But people at, at kind of the top, corporate America, particularly Wall Street, who when they win, they make billions. When they lose, we bail them out. And so there's all this anger. And so here comes a guy who's credentialed outside of politics because he's on TV for 10 years on primetime, even if all he's doing is firing comedians uh, for not selling enough cotton candy. It's some, you know, Remember, it's all product placement. The whole thing is is rigged. It's a TV ad as a TV show for products. They pay to be there. But Trump was the in-charge guy. When you did the data on it, it was all art of the deal. He'll get things done. He'll shake it up. And the risk of Trump was not really in the calculation because people hadn't had real, real, real 20th century pain in a while. We, we, we've had wars, but wars with a volunteer army, not a draft. Um, we, we had the Great Recession in 2007, but we hadn't had a lot of economic pain, not real economic pain since then. So it was kind of easy to take a flyer on Trump and kind of laugh, and it's all entertainment. And then Corona came, and all of a sudden the stakes shot up. I mean, a lot of our political class here was like, well, the Mueller report, the this, the that, why, why, are, why doesn't anybody abandon him, blah, blah, blah. Well, two things were going on. One People were abandoning him. Trump has had crappy poll numbers since, you know, a month after he got elected. So I've been I've been short his reelection ever since then. But they've gotten worse. But this Washington stuff looks like another Washington food fight. You know, the Republicans say this. And, and you go to a focus group, somebody will say, you know, yeah, he got dirt from the Russians about Hillary. But, you know, Hillary, she would have gotten dirt from the Russians about him if she could have done it. They're all the same. They're all corrupt, blah, blah, blah. A, part, a, a sign of institutional weakness, which ought to worry us. Because we used to hold presidents to a standard, uh, which would force them to act the standard. So now, with the coronavirus, it's in it's in your life. Your plant's closing. You're in economic pain, real economic pain. Um, your brother-in-law's restaurant may never open. Your 62-year-old uncle has it, and he's on a, a ventilator in a hospital, with even money chance to live, or worse. So a real crisis came, and all of a sudden, um, it, it's kind of like the movie premise where the actor who plays a cop suddenly has to solve a real case, you know, and it all falls apart. And that's what's happened to Trump. And Trump's method is the lie. It's all, you know, uh, exaggeration and superlatives. Greatest ever. Swallow a Christmas tree light. Drink a little Clorox. You know, it's, um, it's just ripped him to pieces. You know, it's funny. Most leaders, and this has happened with the American governors in most places until recently, during the first wave of the virus, their, their polling goes up because it's a crisis. They're standing there with five guys in state trooper uniforms and doctor outfits, and they got a plan. And people want authority when they're scared, so they kind of cling to it. Uh, um, Fauci, the chief doctor in our world, who's highly respected, his polling number, like 80%, he's a national celebrity. Trump's gone down significantly, even among, as you say, his own people, where he's got real problems, a third of them or more not buying in. Because he's been so bad in the spotlight, and all he's done is lie, and they know. you know. So this has been the final neckbreaker for him politically, which is why right now Joe Biden, who is far from a perfect 
super formidable candidate as far as candidate skills. He's sitting on the kind of numbers that look like Nixon in 72 or Reagan in 84. Uh, Joe, Joe is going to be damn hard for Trump to beat because Trump has dug himself in such a horrible hole, and he doesn't seem to have any of the tools to get himself out of it through being president. Now, maybe he'll have the tools to run a campaign that vilifies Biden. That's in his you know wheelhouse and his comfort level. But it's hard to run against the government when you are the government. Now, I'm super keen to dig into to the 2020 campaign and Biden versus Trump. But before we get to that, you know, just want to round out this point on trust. Um, you know, you talked about the food fight in Washington. You know, how much of a problem is this kind of blue team, red team approach? And, and how critical, you know, is it to have friendships uh, across the aisle or even just uh, relationships across the aisle? I mean, you have famously... Um, very close with David Axelrod, who is uh, who was Obama's chief strategist and uh, your co-host on the uh, great podcast Hacks on Tap. It's a fantastic podcast, my favorite podcast. Everyone should listen. There's a plug there for you, mate. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but you know how critical is that? Well, it, it is a problem. So the, the ugly little secret is, and this is true in the Congress too. It used to be more true, but it, but it's still true. Is behind the food fight, most of them are friends. They get along pretty well. You will see on our television. Two members of Congress who are, you know, in the leadership cast, the top 60 people there, fighting on TV, calling each other names. And then you'll be in the Capitol building and they're both on an elevator talking about, hey, going to the barbecue tomorrow? We got a thing for the National Association of, you know, plastic molding. Um, so it's it. And, and th- th- what has happened is there's nowhere left for them to hide, be friends and get anything done. Part of it is the way our system works. In our House of Representatives, you know, we have uh, 435 congressional seats that are normally, oh, quarter million or 200,000 voters, you know, maybe 700,000 people. And they're all over the country. And there used to be between the most liberal Republican and the most conservative Democrat, about 80 seats kind of there. And there were about 80 seats that were what we would call swing seats that could go either way. So, you know, they had to build a coalition beyond just Republicans or Democrats to win that seat. But then redistricting took over where state legislatures and governors and it's a complicated process, but they drew the seats to be safe. So all you care about are your party voters. So now we only have about 20 of those seats. And there are only three people between the most liberal Republican and most conservative Democrats. So it becomes you're on a team and you don't have any room to move. And the incentives are to fight. And then you've got the cable TV business where we got a channel for every point of view saying, you're right, you're right, they're terrible. So there was a congressman who was a minister in Philadelphia who coined a great phrase that I steal all the time, uh, Bill Gray, who said the problem is the formula has now become I'm right, you're evil. And if the other side is evil, you can say anything about them or do anything. You're a hero. You're killing the devil. So that corrosiveness has trapped everybody, and a lot of them hate it, into this world where it's all worrying about your primary voters. Because you might have 700,000 people in your district and 195,000 voters, but because it's a mostly Republican district and you're going to win 90 uh percent of the time, unless something really crazy happens, all you really care about is the 35,000 voters in the primary who are generally driven by interest groups. Same thing on the Democratic side. And I remember California, a big Democratic state, used to be a swing state. I was working for Schwarzenegger. We would do the big budget negotiation at the very end of the process after all the fighting. We'd put everybody in a room, be the governor and the two legislative leaders, the big five. 
And the Republicans were in the minority. They'd sit there and wonder what was for lunch. And the Speaker of the House, the Democratic Speaker, could not order lunch or move a chair without calling the head of the teachers union or the head of the state employee union. So Arnold used to say, throw him out, get her in, because they were so powerful in primaries, you couldn't buck them. So that has taken the lubrication out of the gears and frozen everything. And it's it's bad because we're teaching people that politics doesn't solve anything, which means they lose faith in the system, which means they elect dregs to just fight. So it's a compounding thing that's really trouble. I, I've got to put one more plug in. I, When I'm not doing what I normally do, I also spend a lot of time at University of Southern California, USC, the Center for the Political Future with Bob Schrupp, who, like David Axelrod, is a Democrat consultant that I spent a career fighting in campaigns, but we've been friends. You know, I, he's wrong on everything. He's got a I heart Lenin tattoo. But he's he's a good guy and he's a patriot. So you can be opponents, uh, but not enemies, and that's the way politics used to work. I mean, Axe and I have a joke. We we have run more Iowa governor races against each other. And we would like, it would go back and forth. And even though we're killing each other in the campaign, we would, um, you know, we'd sneak off and have dinner in some small rural place where nobody would see us. It's kind of like pro wrestling. You know, I'm the Russian assassin. He's Captain America. And actually, we're cousins. Uh, but it's not quite that cynical because he, he, I'm a conservative and I believe it. One of the reasons I hate Trump is I don't think he's a conservative at all. And Axelrod's a good, committed liberal. So we, we know we disagree on stuff, but we love the system. And, you know, and having those relationships, too, if a campaign really goes out of whack, you can have a little back channel knowing there's no mercy in it, but there are rules. And there can be a little back channel to try to keep the, the thing on the playing field, not out in the stands hurting civilians. Now, I just want to turn attention to your side of the show, the Republican Party. Um, you know, you are a very, very prominent never-Trumper, but I want to talk about the future of the Republican Party. Um, Trump was a bit of an outsider. Um, he sort of, you know, undertook a hostile takeover uh, of the of the Republican Party, but it's very much now fashioned in his image. There is a resistance um, but I want to pose it a question to you because, you know, a lot of people focus on 2020. If Trump wins, is that the end uh, of the Republican Party? And does it have a future um, if Trump wins the election? Because it is important um, that mainstream politics does have a, a mainstream exactly. uh, conservative party. Well, that that is a great question. So it was a takeover. And we've gone from being a... You know, I'll use the Australian example. We're a small L liberal party. We believed in free trade and we believed in the Atlantic Alliance. We were fiscal conservatives. You know, we were kind of classic. And then Trump takes over and all of a sudden it's Juan Perón. Doesn't care anything about the budget or entitlements, blows up all the alliances, runs in a, a, a racket with near criminal behavior with Confederates and people like that. He has a soft spot for the white supremacist movement, which was long dead, and he's sprinkled a little gasoline on the embers, see what he can do there. And he's ruined the Republican brand. And Republican politicians, with a few notable exceptions, I'll give a salute to my old friend and client Mitt Romney, um, have pretty much gone cynical and looked the other way, thinking, well, we won, we have power. And or I'm I'm afraid one senator told me, look, I, I'd love to I see you on cable TV screaming about Trump. This was, you know, two years ago. I would love to do that. I go home, give a fiery speech. He's a moron. I've seen him in the White House. He can't work a TV remote. The aide has to come do it. He's an idiot. 
Uh, and my wife would be so happy. She'd talk to me again. It would be fantastic. And I'd give that fiery speech back in my state. And a day later, I'd have a guy in an Uncle Sam suit with an aluminum foil hat primering me, and I'd be only one point ahead. And I'd probably lose. And then some socialist would take over or some Democrat, and I've been in the trenches 30 years fighting that. And Trump wouldn't change at all. You know, Trump will just be Trump, so we're going to wait him out. And I said, well, what if 10 of you guys came forward? And he said, sign me up. I'm number three. Tell me who the first two are. And, you know, that that has been the problem. But as you say, it's ruined the brand. And I think if Trump loses, we're going to have a big civil war over what we are. Do we go back to the liberal party kind of conservatism or do we stay in this populist madness? Now, the argument for a reversion to some modernized mean is political parties don't like losing. And under Trump, we've been wiped out. I mean, you know, American politics is is such a big country. It's full of a lot of bullshit because there's room for commentators and pollsters. It's an endless TV show. And, you know, guilty, I'm part of it. But most of them haven't really done campaigns. And and like like hard-headed businessmen, one thing we know from doing campaigns here on both sides, the operatives know, is like Wall Street, we have a thing called mark-to-market. What is it worth today? You, You have to sell your factory this week. There's a price you get. Not going to be maybe the best price, or maybe that week it will be, but there's what it's worth now. You market to market. Take an asset. What is it worth today in cash? Not what in 10 years it'll be worth. Well, in politics, mark to market, election day. We count the votes. And the polls don't matter. The predictions don't matter. It's just what is. So in every mark to market moment since Trump took the oath of office after being elected, problem partners got beat. And we've gotten beat either really bad, medium bad, or mediocre. There are no big wins where we would have a special election and a safe Republican seat, and we'd win it by 10 instead of the normal 20. Uh, in swing seats, we've generally gotten our clock clean. We, we've had the biggest wipeout in the Congress since Watergate. We've lost nine governorships. Um, and right now, we're on our way to losing the Senate, which is a shocker, because to do that, we're going to have to lose some lean Republican states. And right now, the polling's a disaster. Maybe there'll be a big comeback. Uh, it's possible, but it, it'll be hanging on by one seat if we do it. So, Trump has been anthrax. I mean, we are drinking Clorox politically. And when the party regroups after that, I think the biggest, quote, we're going to get tired of winning guy in America becomes the biggest loser, wiped out our political power, and our legislators are all moving into smaller office and nobody calls them Mr. Chairman anymore. Um, you know, we, we have had a tremendous, one of the stats people don't look at is since Trump was elected, Almost half the serving Republican members of Congress or the Senate have retired or been beaten, you know, and left. So out of that rubble, we either decide this is 1946 and we're Toyota and we're going to need some new modern factories here. uh, Or we go with Trump Jr. or Trump tries again or a Trump imitator, which will have strength in the party. There are diehards who will, you know, it's a cult. But I think it'll be a much more fair fight, and Trump will have none of that allure of the big winner who's going to do anything because there's going to be very little left. Uh, so my guess is we will lurch in, in a more normal direction, but you know the other part of the story is we have to modernize conservatism simply because the demography is against us. You know, It used to be in American politics, 88, then down to 82, and then you know 80% of the vote was Caucasian, and the Republicans won a majority of that vote. This election, we'll see if we can get to 71% Caucasian. My guess is it'll be more like 70. 
Um, so we've been standing still retreating among white voters. Well, non-white voters, where we can't get arrested, no surprise, look at you know the way we act, especially lately, have been exploding in size. So we're in a demographic vice, so we need to modernize conservatives. Now, the good thing is there's a market. You know, thank God for the Democrats, because the loony left is getting stronger and stronger on their side. And over time, there will be a fatigue there. Um, and we will have an opportunity to offer quite an alternative, but it's up to us to figure out what that alternative is going to be. So who are the people to keep an eye out for? Who are the, uh, the, the likely leaders of the future in the Republican Party, good and bad? Well, you know, it, there's always kind of a casino game of who's who, and it's always kind of wrong. But the the next generation, I'll start, there's former Governor Nikki Haley of South Carolina. Um, she was two-term governor there. She was Trump UN ambassador. She kind of escaped the chains of Trump, but she was Trumpy when it when she had to be. I think she's the most cynical person I've ever dealt with in American politics. So she's very formidable, but I'd love to sprinkle a little holy water on her and see what happens. I'm not a big fan, but because I've dealt with her, but she is um, she is definitely a contender, and and she'll again she'll she'll make a deal with anybody to get the job. So you, you got to look at her. Um, and she's been adroit at being right with Trump when it was in her interest. And who? Trump? Huh? Right, you know, lately. Uh, that cynicism may catch up with her, but she's for rule. Then in the Senate, you got a couple of junior Trumps, Josh Hawley um, and uh, um, Tom Cotton. Uh, Tom's a veteran, does kind of the veteran hero, Trumpian thing. I appreciate his service, but his politics are demagogic. But, hey, you know, there's some evidence to show there's a ticket there. Marco Rubio, senator from Florida, is always hum and hail to the chief. We're C. He ran before. Um, there are, you know, Ben Sass is kind of a thoughtful conservative. He's been gutless on Trump, but his other stuff has been very good from Nebraska. Doesn't have a huge base, but attractive candidate. Um, the Trump sons. Oh, you know, particularly Don Jr. It's kind of openly talking about it. Yeah. One, one of the problems is this happened in Hollywood after Arnold got elected. Arnold was funny. A California governor, you know, is enough of a big figure. You have security issues, particularly with a super movie star like him. So, the you know, he has they'd run around Sacramento in a suburban with a you know chase car. But whenever I was in Hollywood, he'd have him put on the full package, two suburban sirens, motorcycle. You know, it was ridiculous just to show his friends. And next thing you know, Rob Reiner's thinking about running for governor. Rob Lowe, you know, I mean, it, it kind of caught on. Well, with Trump, every idiot with a yacht is thinking, hey, it could be me. So we could have a couple of those guys. Um, and then the latest D.C. bubble, and again, I, I've been around this too long, and most of the people in American TV with opinions about politics never run a campaign. Uh, so I'm, I'm a little cynical about the conventional wisdom, but Tucker Carlson, who probably, no. I don't know if he means anything over there, Might but he's, he's kind of the, yeah, yeah, you're, you, you'd know about him, but he's, uh, he, he's very glib. He's a big star on Fox. Old friend of mine, before he went crazy, used to be a respected journalist, but he's kind of the, the, the sharp... Uh, acid-tongued but clever Trumpian guy in TV. So there's a boomlet now for Tucker. I think he would never make it. And my guess is he's, you know, making too much money being a TV blowhard. But, uh, you know, there, he's being mentioned right now. It's uh, So it, I would I would tell my friends in Australia to kind of tune in. You know, I do like, – I can finally admit it. I used to do a lot of work in Canada. They didn't talk about it at the time. And it was always fun with my Canadian friends. And I, there's probably a parallel. 
uh, kind of a Commonwealth thing with Australia. But the Canadians would always say, well, I'm a I'm a federal Tory, I'm a provincial social credit voter, and I'm an American Democrat. Because <laughs> they'd see so much of it, they'd adopt a party to root for. So I would say, if you like the theater of the absurd, and it may, I think it may get better and become hopeful, and if Trump loses, as he is likely but not certain to, uh, keep an eye on the Republican primary, because there will be no end of entertainment. <laughs> well, that's... Um it certainly sounds like good theatre, if nothing else. Um, of course, though, for there to be a Republican primary, there's got to be, firstly, a, a Democratic victory, a Biden presidency. Um, you know, Biden at the moment, you look at the polling, he's well ahead on national polls, double-digit leads in most national polls. He's got good single-digit leads in all the critical swing states. You're a strategist. You know, you're running Biden's campaign. What's keeping you up at night right now um, if you are in charge of that campaign? Um, that... Nobody knows Joe Biden. You know, it's one of these things where they're way ahead of their supply lines in, in the polling. And what I mean by that is the the country wants to fire Donald Trump. I'd argue they've wanted that since 2017, which is why the Republican Party's taken a beating on every mark-to-market day of elections. Almost everywhere, almost all the time, almost always really bad. So fire Trump is what's winning the election now. And that's not uncommon. Generally, our presidential elections are a referendum on the incumbent, keep them or lose them. But at some point in the campaign, they take a look at the challenger. Now, because of coronavirus, Joe's been locked in his basement doing a few good things. But, you know, to political junkies, Biden is well known. He's been around forever. To rank and file voters, they don't know much about him at all other than old guy from D.C. who seems blue collar and seems like a good guy to have a beer with. They don't know anything else. And the Trump campaign is going to have a couple hundred million to do what incumbents in trouble always do, which is beat the hell out of him. And that's coming. Uh, And there's been a lot of worry that the Biden fundraising operation has been anemic. His campaign started with a small staff. Can he handle that? Well, the last two months, he's raised more money than Donald Trump, which is a very good sign. So the Biden folks are catching up fast. But Joe, I know him. I like him. Um... I ideologically, I, I was for Buttigieg just because I know him and I think he, he, and again, I'm a conservative. So yeah, yeah, all of this is like painful for me because on policy, I'm not with many of them, but I want to get rid of Trump. I'm actually. Uh, well, how much were you freaking out uh, about Bernie Sanders, who was in the lead um, going into South Carolina and looked like he might win at one point? Oh God, my worst nightmare come to life. You know, it's unbelievable. I, I was on the phone trying to see if we could get a Neil Kinnock lookalike to come over and primary him. It'd be an inch better. Um, uh, so I'm part of Republican Voters Against Trump, rvat.org, if you're curious. And we're running a big, aggressive campaign. So uh, as I like to say, I'm, I'm, I'm not buying Democrat. I'm leasing for four years to get rid of Trump. So Biden. So here, here's the Biden problem. Look at him just like a product. So there's the Iowa caucus. Now, it's a weird election, small turnout, Iowa. But it's um, it's important and it's the first test. Well, Biden starts 20 points ahead and he gets there because he's known in the Democratic Party, liked. And all of a sudden there's competition. So good soybean farmer in Iowa gets to start with Biden. But then, hey, there's this Buttigieg guy. He's really impressive. Wow, I like this Cory Booker. You know, I like, I like uh, Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota, a just north of here. And all of a sudden in a competitive market, Biden gets wiped out when people have other choices. And so then he goes to New Hampshire and he gets wiped out again. Well, bad sign. Then he gets to South Carolina, the first contest with a large African-American, you know, population influential in it, which is true in the Southern Democratic primaries. 
And because of his connection to Obama and because of earned affection in that community and because the most powerful leader in the community was all for him, he went. So he's the turtle upon the fence post. He did not climb up there himself. Now, they then surfed forward and beat everybody and came back from the dead, so I give him a big salute. But what that's telling me is when they're, you know, Biden is not a magic candidate, you know, he needs that help. And right now what's helping him is fire Trump, which I doubt will change. But Biden's going to go through some bumpy times if they can manage that, particularly the big debates, because the Trump campaign slogan has been Biden's a sleepy, crazy old man. And Biden has had some bad moments on the trail. Um, Part of it is Biden is kind of a motor mouth and he gets kind of tangled up and everything. I think Biden is smarter and sharper than Trump by a mile. But perception's reality of judicious editing. You get these moments. So Trump's going to build that up. And if Biden has a sharp debate, he'll it'll be destroyed. It'll be over. But if Biden has a bad debate because Joe was too busy calling other old politicians around the country and not going through grueling debate prep for the next five months and doesn't take it seriously. And in the past, Joe has not been a very disciplined campaigner. So if Joe can't get into shape here, he will give Trump an opening. Now, my guess is the country will still fire Trump, but let's remember the Obama example. Obama had bad reelect numbers, not as bad as Trump, but bad. And so they went out and they defined my friend Mitt Romney a lot better than Mitt defined himself, and they beat him. And it'll be the same strategy for Trump with more ferocity. The other thing I worry about, and you know, I'm not send any angry emails to David Axelrod at the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, dear listeners, but I'm a hard-headed politician, so I'm talking about the numbers. I worry a little. The Democrats have a fetish for identity. You go to the DNC website. See, what we Republicans do, and drives them crazy, but we try to pitch one big idea of room for everybody. Make America great again, uh, which was originally a Reagan slogan. Shining city on a hill. And so we tend to have one big vision, whether you like it or not, for where we're going and put everybody in it. The Democrats tend to say New Englanders for Biden. I mean, I have a yard sign in my basement where we record the podcast. I collect a lot of this political stuff over the years. And I've got a Native Americans for Al Gore yard sign with a big feather on it. Now, I have nothing against feathers. I have nothing against, in fact, I'm a fan of Native American culture. But you go to the DNC page and it's, uh, African-Americans for Biden, Asian-Americans, for, you know, it's 400 groups. And right now, the theory in conventional wisdom is African-American voters are so important, we have to have an African-American running mate because we've had this moment of awakening about systemic racism. And I agree with everything but the African-American running mate. Why? Because the African-American vote is the one thing Biden has. He has tons of it. And what he's got to worry about are cranky, white people who are suspicious of identity politics and if there's a racial undercurrent there i would like to fix it after the election after you get their damn votes and you have power and if we we nominate a kamala harris or something else to reinforce a vote already have you give trump an opening and trump is a racist and a run a racist campaign so going to the liberal african-american left is scary to me. It adds risk to the Biden campaign, and I don't want risk. I want Trump in a box going out of the, you know, a box of his papers being shoved out of the office. So I, they have to be careful about that. And the, the theory is, oh, if you don't do it, everybody will stay home. Nobody is going to stay home against Trump. Biden has respect in that community. They know his administration will be strongly of color. Um, but pandering to, see, one of the problems we have American politics now, and the media has bought into this, is this narrative that base voters are swing voters. 
No. Base voters will vote for a box of horseshoes if it has an R or D on it. They, but you've got to win the election by making your base slightly uncomfortable and reaching out a little bit. And if the Biden people run an all-base strategy, then we're going to be debating Kamala Harris positions like cash reparations for you know former slaves, which I can tell you in the industrial suburbs where Trump rang the bell in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan is going to be much better for Trump than it is for Biden. So I don't want to give Trump any of those tools. So I worry about the VP pick. The, the, nobody in American politics votes for VP. It's just a big Super Bowl for the press, a uh, big contest where you, the voters learn something about the, the the candidate for president based on who he or she picks. So he, Biden, this whole election will come down to the suburbs. The Republicans under Trump have lost the suburbs. You know, college-educated white women, college-educated white independents and males. And if Biden goes hard left or goes too racial, they're gonna the suburbs are gonna start going back to the safety of the GOP. So my advice to Biden on all these things about winning is take the risk out of it. Pick an Amy Klobuchar, though she took herself out. Pick a Gia Raimondo, the governor of Rhode Island, best Democratic governor in the country. Uh, pick a Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, key state, popular, smart, generational change. Uh, pick Governor Lujan, even, in, of New Mexico. She's impressive. But careful, 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 careful with the identity stuff. Because the, the Trump, their best skill is pulling the Democrats who are run by a coastal elite into culture wars. And in the Midwest, the Dems have lost, Whitmer knows what to do in Michigan, but they have lost the ability to really understand a Republican culture war attack. And I mean, look at Hillary. I know people in Michigan where I grew up around Detroit who on weekends had had come up in the auto industry, were making good money as trained machinists, you know, the high-skilled blue-collar jobs. On weekends were being paid cash to assemble 40-ton stamping presses and put them on freight cars to Mexico. And most of them are Democrats. And they are listening to Hillary Clinton talk about gender rights and bathrooms. Now, gender rights and bathrooms are important. But if you're a 52-year-old auto worker who's never going to learn how to code, and you're watching the machine your dad worked on that gave you a middle-class life being taken down into parts and putting on a freight car to Mexico, you got other problems. And if the Democrats, they don't need to win that vote, but they need to be competitive there. And I'm worried their identity fetish, sorry for the long answer, will steer him into a place where Trump will have a good September. That said, I think Joe wins. I mean, if I had to bet, I'd bet on Joe, definitely. Well, I personally uh, have a rule to never bet on elections ever again <laughs> after the 2016 uh, presidential election. Those who know me will understand why. And I just want to switch gears a little. Um, we've talked a lot about you know, the current presidency, the upcoming election. Talk about some previous elections and candidates you worked for mm-hmm. um, and a little bit of kind of politics in the pub, uh, you know, it's sort of a bit of Ali versus Tyson. Um, you worked for, we talked about Schwarzenegger, but you worked for um, John McCain, who's a legendary uh, Republican senator, presidential candidate. The 2000 campaign um, that he lost uh, to George Bush, you know, do you think the Republican Party, do you think the world would have been different had uh, McCain won that one? Oh, sure. Yeah. We, we've got hacks at the pub here. I like it. Uh so, uh, number one beer in Australia. What, a Foster's? <laughs> Mate, definitely not a Foster's. It's actually an export beer. Nobody in Australia drinks Foster's, believe it or not. What's the best one? What do I order when I'm there? Let's go with a VB, mate. That, that's kind of what I see the advertising. That's why I asked you. I didn't want to go up the line and hand me a Foster's because I thought, I'll bet I'll be wrong. Yeah, I well, if John had won the nomination, and you know, I worked a lot on 2000 with him, 
He was an amazing character. I, I'm very, very fond of him. We had an incredible time because it was a pure insurgency. You know, we got to sneak around blowing up bridges and everything. And then if they had called our bluff and actually made us the nominee, it would have been a bumpy general election candidate because McCain was always ready to get into a, a, a good fight with a third of his own party. Um, but had we won, uh, I think McCain would have been a great reformer in the Teddy Roosevelt tradition, and it would have reclocked things a bit. Um, it, it, it would have been bumpy, but it would have been, let's put, there's a, and I'm from Los Angeles. I also work in show business, a writer and producer. And there's a great old line about Jack Warner who built Warner Brothers Studio with his brother. And Jack was a very crusty guy. He, he Albert Einstein once came to the studio and they said, hey, Jack, this is uh, Professor Einstein. He wrote the theory of relativity. And Warren said, yeah, I got a theory. Warner said, I got a theory too about relatives. Don't go into business with them because he was always fighting his brother. But anyway, they asked him how hard it was to run a big movie studio in the golden age and he said well you got to make a choice i don't get heart attacks i give them and mccain would have given a lot of heart attacks he would have been on offense all the time and i think he 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 would have been a great president i think he really would have and then we would have had the bad second term probably and you know wouldn't have been as good um but i think you know the party had become so corrupted by just keeping the perpetual power machine in dc uh, that and this stunned me. I thought most of the hacks would go around, but I know a lot of these senators. I've worked for a bunch of them, you know, and congressmen. Uh, I thought there'd be more pushback. And as you said, other than the Russian stuff, sanctions, a few things like that, occasionally China, uh, and kind of a lot of eye rolling at the North Korea policy, there hasn't been. They've been gutless. And, you know, it's funny. They get a federal paycheck, but it's not like we're asking them to land on Anzio Beach and get shot. You know, we're just asking them to give up Senate haircuts if they for two bucks if they lose a primary. But apparently, and that that shook me. And my guess is the Democrats, if so tested, might be just as bad. I mean, it's been very easy to be a Democrat because you get a free halo from Trump, and you can say, "Oh, he's horrible. He's horrible." Well, and it, it's not morally equivalent. But when Clinton was misbehaving. Uh, in the White House and lying to the camera about it, all the strong feminists of the Democratic Party found comfort in silence. So it is it has scared me about the spines and patriotism of the kind of people we elect uh, elect to Congress. Because I'm, I'm proud the Democrats have been tough on Trump, but it's been easy. There's no cost in it for him. It's a winner. Now, Mike, I could, of course, go on all day picking your brain uh, on these <laughs> topics, but it's now time for the inverted commas fun part of the show where I do my trademark clunky segue from heavy foreign policy talk to light chat. <laughs> now, of course, you're an avid uh, fan of diplomates, so you know uh, this question is coming your way, Mike. <laughs> well, you've got to listen to this episode at least because there'll be two listeners, you and my mum. I-, I have it on my subscription list, so I promise you I will. So, barbecue at Mike Murphy's. Who are the three Aussies coming along and why? Oh, well, I'd love to meet an Australian prime minister. Mr. Morrison of the Liberal Party would be interesting. Um, and I'm also curious about all the, the nutty intrigue and all that. Um, oh, you mean the coup capital? Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's Game of Thrones down there. So I, I'm, I, I, I'm curious about that. So may, maybe I'd also invent, invite an opponent and watch them circle each other. But I want it to be a fun barbecue. I would call my... A wonderful friend of mine we dated for years named uh, Judith, who's from Melbourne, grew up there, not there now. 
in New York. But um, she used to tell me great stories about various characters. So I'd give her one person to pick because I've heard all the names, but I'm going to get it wrong right now. I would probably do that. And boy, um, Australia in so many ways punches way above its weight. And there are some tremendous film directors and actors that have come out of there. And based on my Hollywood life, I'd drag Sam Neill in or maybe Himes or one of the great Australian Bettisford. You know, there's a lot. It would be a tough call. But probably somebody Judith would recommend to uh, uh, amaze me of her knowledge uh Morrison or even a former prime minister um but somebody from the liberal party on the right just cuz I'm curious about all the madness and uh one one of your leading film people probably or start with Sam Neill just cuz he's a truly great actor and he's had an amazing career I love to hear the stories <laughs> I'm laughing um Mike because you've stumbled into one of the great Australian ripoffs which is that um anyone who becomes famous from New Zealand globally immediately become stolen uh, as an Australian citizen. So Sam Neill, believe it or not, is actually Kiwi. So you've gone and made, unwittingly, a host of enemies uh, in New Zealand. And I've got a huge following uh, with this show in New Zealand. So there you go, mate. Enemies for life all over the shaky Isles. <laughs> you guys should just invade and solve that thing. You know, I understand they don't have an army. It wouldn't take long. Um, I, I wasn't going to say, I, I, I was not, I don't know how many Americans, they probably always say Paul Hogan, and I was definitely not going to go there. Crocodile Dundee, obviously, right, exactly. mate, or uh, or another Kiwi, Russell Crowe. Oh, I didn't know that. I, You know, I bumped into him once, um, and I bumped into this guy, and he turned around, and I thought, one, sorry, for, and he was nice, uh, sorry for bumping in, and two, wow, you're not 6'4", <laughs> like all movie stars, you know? It was at the Tonight Show with Jay Leno, long story, but anyway, I... I I, I, Crow, Crow would be, you know, um, Guy uh, Pierce is a tremendous actor. Uh, he he would be high on my list. Uh, there's an Australian television show I love where he's kind of a down and out lawyer detective. It, it it airs here like two years later, and it's perfectly made, and it's a great cast of Australian character actors. He's box office. Well, can I wrap up with a few plugs here, real quick? Absolutely, go for it. Republican voters against Trump. We are doing a lot of cool, vicious anti-Trump ads and stuff. So you got to check us out at rvat rvat dot org. One of the things we're doing is we're having real Republicans just get online and do an ad into the camera. Very grassroots. We've done over 350 of them. And then we air them digitally in the key five states. And we got big news coming. In fact, we just, you appreciate this as a poll. We just did a dirty trick. We took a poll of Jacksonville, Florida, Duval County, a lean Republican, but an important county there, where Trump wants to have the convention. We found out they don't want it. <laughs> they don't want a COVID convention. So we're throwing a lot of bombs there. And if you're curious about what's going on in the Republican Civil War, they're a good place to go. And then, of course, Hacks on Tap. And Radio Free GOP, we just did a special episode with Bill Crystal and a bunch of the other leaders of RVAT talking about our strategy. So uh, when you listen to every Diplomat po- podcast twice, and after you've memorized it and you want another one, check out one of those, and uh, hopefully you enjoy it. Well, of course, mate. I, I love uh, Hacks on Tap and uh, encourage everyone to listen in. It's a fantastic show. And check out Radio GOP. There you go. I'm doing Republican ads, mate. Now, <laughs> just one supplementary question, um, if I could. Just yeah, me, of course. You know, You've talked a bit about never trumping. I mean, what should people be doing, um, you know, if they are Republican in this election? Uh, should they be voting for Biden? Should they stay home? Should they split their ticket? What What would you say to those people? Yeah, in this my election? my argument is vote Biden. He's not that bad. <laughs> That's my powerful slogan. I got to stop Trump. So participate, but vote Biden. If you can't stand that, participate, but skip. Just don't 
don't vote in the presidential, or write in Ronald Reagan. Nothing wrong with that. Or write in John McCain. Write in Mitt Romney. You know, write write in whoever you believe in. So vote for a president you want, not the one you endure. And uh, but I encourage people to vote. And down the ticket, I'm really this is the big fight in the not never Trump movement. Should we throw out the Republican Senate uh, and House to punish them for what they've done of Trump? Or is it still okay to vote for a gutless Republican senator? And I'm really torn on this. I'm leaning toward it's still okay to vote for a gutless Republican senator. And I I have a complicated argument, which I'll try to do very quickly. Biden's big superpower in the Senate was he was the only guy on the Democratic side who could make a deal with Republicans because they trust him. He could go into a room with Mitch McConnell and they'd have a hell of a battle, but they respect each other. He'd come out with something. If the Democrats win the Senate and the House and the Biden presidency... Joe's going to find himself boxed in by the left, and Joe's a centrist Democrat. And he's going to be a little less powerful and ideologically a little more in the corner than he's going to want to be. Yet the Republicans still hold on to the Senate by a vote and and have the majority there. And the Democrats have the House, which they will have. Then Biden's got something to work with. He's got a little counterforce where he can say, I'm the only guy who can get this out of McConnell. I'm not going to be able to get your AOC agenda from the hard left, but I can get this, that, and the other thing. I'll trade him for that. And the Republicans, on the other hand, will be hanging on by one vote and terrified and ready to deal. So there's kind of, from Biden's personal point of view, having a narrow one-vote Senate lead, Biden's got more power to operate And ideologically, it would be a more centrist outcome than totally turning over the world to the D's, where the Republicans in the Senate will just go into flame-throwing opposition mode like a bunch of House guys. will make the job of rebuilding the party harder, too. So I'm kind of for the one-vote edge in the Senate as mad as I am at them, and uh, I'm still kind of working that through. So whatever it is, I tell everybody to vote. Don't stay home. It's democracy. Do your duty. Do your duty. What a hopeful uh, place to end this conversation. Mike Murphy, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been fantastic. Thank you, Misha. Anytime. Take care. Let me know if you're ever in the U.S. Hopefully not too far away. Cheers, mate. Take care. See you. G'day, Diplomates fans. One last plug for Mike. Hacks on Tap. If you're not already listening to it, do yourself a favor. Listen, subscribe to the show. You will not be disappointed. It is absolutely an outstanding political podcast. It's my favorite political show. You get more of Mike Murphy, who I hope you enjoy. He's a fantastic person to listen to. And you get David Axelrod, who's an absolute legend of democratic US politics. So you've got those two together. You get a guest on. It's a lot of fun. So much insight. Tune in. You'll enjoy it. Also, while I have you, if you haven't done it already, homework time. Jump on iTunes, your favorite podcasting app, rate, review, subscribe to the show. It really does help spread the word and it really, uh, you'd be doing me a massive solid. So please, thank you so much for doing it. Hope you enjoyed the show. See you next time. You were just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, producer Jim Mintz.